This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This is The Jackpot, where On Point News analyst Jack Beatty helps us connect history, literature, and politics in a way that brings unique clarity to the world we live in now. I'm Dori Scheimer, senior editor at On Point and producer of The Jackpot, filling in for Meghna Chakrabarty this week. Hello, Jack. Hello, Dori. It is episode 22. What's the headline? Goodbye to all that. Six. Six. Eight. Nine, nine. These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live or to go into the dark. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. Jack, what do you mean by goodbye to all that? And how does it relate to Lyndon Johnson's famous 1964 Daisy ad that we just heard? Sure. Well, goodbye to all that is the really lapidary title of Robert Graves' classic World War I memoir. And uh, in ascending order of hyperbole, goodbye to all that for this program applies to what uh, Donald Trump's second term would do to the climate change measures taken by Biden in his first term. It would be goodbye to basically the the measures incorporated in the Inflation Reduction Act. It would secondarily be goodbye to international cooperation on um, uh, combating global warming. It would be goodbye to uh, uh, (laughs) eventually a livable planet and goodbye uh, planet Earth. So that's what we're referring to here. We hope to contrast what Trump too would be like for the environment, one scientist calls it horrific, and what Biden too would be like. And Jack, can you just quickly explain the LBJ ad? That's a three-year-old girl plucking flower petals, and of course, that's a nuclear explosion in the background. Without even naming him, the ad alludes to the danger of Barry Goldwater as president. Goldwater voted against the nuclear test ban treaty. He had written, the U.S. should not fear war with the Soviets. He had declared that the nuclear bomb was, quote, merely another weapon, and he had indulged in apocalyptic flippancy, for example, joking about lobbing a nuke into the Kremlin men's room. So Barry Goldwater was the target of this ad. So Jack, let's come back now to Trump's plans for a second term. What, what do we know about his environmental policies that may come up in a second term? Well, what we know is uh, is pretty scary, actually. Uh, you know, he said that windmills cause cancer. He has gone on jihads against global warming. He calls global warming make-believe, uh, a hoax, non-existence. 
So he is, uh, he says, you can be loyal to America and labor, or you can be loyal to electric vehicles. Here, here's a sound of Trump uh, in Conway, South Carolina, I believe, I think this just last week, talking about these issues. We are a nation whose leaders are demanding all electric cars, despite the fact that they don't go far, they cost too much, and whose batteries are produced in China with materials only available in China, when an unlimited amount of gasoline is available inexpensively in the United States, but not available in China. Again, that was former President Donald Trump at a campaign event in Conway, South Carolina, just earlier this month. So, I mean, Jack, he's talking about continued reliance on gasoline versus, you know, moving towards an electrified, clean energy future. Is that the whole plan? Well, uh, that's, I think, part of it. Uh, You know, he made false claims there, as the New York Times rightly fact-checking column yesterday pointed out. For example, he says that uh, electric cars can only go 15 minutes without recharging. In fact, they can go 250 miles on a single charge, and some models can go twice that, 500 miles on a single charge. Trump says electric cars are too expensive. Well, according to a July 2022 report, the average price of an electric vehicle now is 53,000. Gas-powered vehicle is 48,000. And the federal tax credits, which are, can, can amount to $7,000, and those are one of the measures in the, in the Biden global warming package, those tax credits pretty much bring the cost of uh, electric even, even slightly better than with gas powered. And it's true that China does lead the world in producing the valuable stuff in batteries and so on. But as we're going to point out in our upcoming series on minerals, uh, the U.S. is trying big time to get into the game of producing its own lithium and other uh, constituent elements of, uh, of batteries. Okay, Jack, now I have no choice to make a shameless plug for On Point's upcoming five-part series about the elements of energy. So we're going to dive deep on the minerals required for the clean energy transition, where they come from, how we get them. So keep your ears out for that. It begins airing March 11th, and you'll find it right here in our podcast feed. So Jack, back to the IRA. I want to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act for a minute because um, that is the Biden policy that really makes pretty huge investments in moving the United States towards a clean energy future. Um, And it seems like Trump would reverse most of the action that Biden took in what is kind of a a landmark policy of his first term. He would indeed. Here is how The Guardian, in a recent piece, summarizes what Trump, too, would be like in that regard. Quote, The United States' first major climate legislation dismantled, a crackdown on government scientists, a frenzy of oil and gas drilling, the Paris climate deal not only dead but buried. That's the summary of what Trump, too, would bring to the environment. And it wouldn't just be a ratification of Trump's um, uh, boisterous ignorance. It would be backed up by staffing and by uh, a program called Project 25 from the uh, Heritage Foundation that lays out in many hundreds of pages 
uh, a program to essentially um, geld the EPA, put government scientists, uh, make it difficult for them to work for the government, and make all sorts of changes that would essentially make America safe for pollution and global warming. Yeah, I, I mean, this Project 2025 outline of what the Trump administration would do I mean, it seems innocuous at the beginning. The mission statement, create a better environmental tomorrow with clean air, safe water, healthy soil, and thriving communities. Doesn't sound so bad. Uh, the challenge of creating conservative EPA, this document says, will be to, quote, balance justified skepticism toward an agency that has long been amenable to being co-opted by the left for political ends against the need to implement the agency's true function, protecting public health and the environment in cooperation with the states. And I think that's what the rest of the document lays out is really dismantling the EPA and its power to enforce um, its policies and really putting the power mostly back to the states uh, to do what it will. Yes, as if the climate were divisible by 50. You know, we can all have, you have your climate in Alaska, we've got ours. Well, we have different weather, but we have the same climate. And, you know, what gall of them to use the word skepticism in, in there since, you know, uh, for, for a long time as, as uh, books about uh, you know, climate denial have pointed out, the Heritage Foundation was a leader in spreading skepticism and any, indeed even climate uh, denial. So they moves away from that now. They're, they've said, well, no, we're not denying climate change, but uh, we don't want to do anything about it. But they, they really were a leader in poisoning the public mind against uh, taking action to, uh, to save the future. Now, contrast what we know about Trump's plans for the environment with what Biden what we know about what Biden would do with the second term. Okay, well, here is uh, the summary of uh, Coral Davenport, who's the environmental reporter of the uh, New York Times. She said the policies of Biden's second term would take aim at steel and cement plants, factories and oil refineries, polluting industries that have never before had to rein in their greenhouse gas emissions. And it, and it would move the United States closer to eliminating fossil fuel production by 2050. These regulations, these would be done by regulations, and, uh, and the regulations are already uh, aborning in the administration. But it's problematic to raise them because you talk about, uh, you know, forcing change on the cement industry, forcing change on factories, on aluminum manufacturers, and their workers and their labor unions become uh, uh, frightened of losing business and losing jobs. So the Biden people are very uh, quiet about what they're preparing. They don't want to surface uh, what th what's in store in Biden too, because it it's politically uh, it, 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 it it makes them politically vulnerable. Which brings up something I, I've talked to two leading um, reporters on the clean energy beat, if you will, who have raised this point that um, that the Biden campaign, the Biden administration, is really not doing a good job communicating to the American public about the benefits 
of clean energy, about the benefits of the IRA, that instead of being scared of the perception that it will cost jobs, it will hurt the economy, there is a positive story to tell about clean energy actually contributing to the economy and creating jobs. Uh, What do you make of the Biden team's seemingly consistent fear about talking about what he would do and being able to tell that story to the public? Well, they had a preview of what they're afraid of uh, last summer, didn't they, when the UAW went on strike. And one of the big issues was electric cars. You know, (laughs) uh, they they can be made with fewer workers. And this was it was a it was a, a fear that was right at the center of that of their negotiations. And Biden doesn't want to raise the same fear, especially in the state of Michigan, and especially because his uh, policies toward the Israel uh, war and Gaza have cost him support of uh, Arab and Muslim American communities in, uh, in Michigan. They're, they're not saying much about it, but, you know, occasionally a clarifying contrast comes into view. Here is Trump talking about uh, global warming. The only global warming, this was in December, the only global warming we should worry about is nuclear warming, meaning nuclear arms race between countries. Here is Biden in September. The only existential threat humanity faces, even more frightening than nuclear war, is global warming. So Biden clearly sees the threat. Trump denies it. What did LBJ say in that ad? Uh, You know, the stakes could not be clearer or the choice could not be clearer. Whatever the lingo is, it couldn't be more stark uh, between these two uh, potential presidencies. And, you know, in fairness to Biden, we we don't have to worry about uh, nuclear bombs if we destroy the planet ourselves. (laughs) So, yes, I mean, I guess that's one way. Um, But, Jack, I mean, then there's there's really the, the reality of the 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 race and you talked about Biden losing support from Muslim Americans but he's also lost support from young Americans over the war in Gaza and at the same time young Americans are the ones who are most passionate who rank climate change you know highest on their list of issues so it seems a hard place for the Biden team, at least, to navigate. Yes, uh, and speculation uh, cited by Carl Davenport in her reporting is that the administration is sort of hoping for, um, you know, to be saved by the weather. <laughs> they're, they're not hoping for, but it's inevitable we're going to have extreme weather this summer. Last summer was the hottest on record. Uh, so uh, and there and there'll be disasters and they'll be and they're hoping that those things will raise the salience of the issue of climate change, especially among young people. And they won't have to make the Biden people won't have to make uh, salient and dramatically clear what they plan to do for the second term because of the political danger of that Making climate change salient, however, will be a, a, a job of work. It only ranks 17 out of 21 national issues in a 2023 uh, poll. So uh, it's going to take a lot of work to get the public to say, oh, my gosh, 
This is the biggest issue facing humanity, especially since the administration seems loath to, uh, to talk much about it. As we discussed earlier, I mean, this is the first time we have two incumbents running for the presidency since Glover Cleveland. Um, so we know what both of these people did as president in their first terms. But we also saw in Donald Trump's first two campaigns that policy and issues don't really seem to matter or impact his support, his base of support. So, I mean, do you think really, even though we have this uh, Project 2025 kind of roadmap for what he'll do, that these policy issues will really make it through the noise to voters? I think it'll be very hard. Um, I would wish it would because it's so important, but I understand why the Biden people are, you know, hesitant. You know, in, in 2004, John Kerry had, a, I think, the best uh, voting record that the environmental groups could confer. He was A1+. plus. He barely said a word about the environment. In 2000, Al Gore, of course, was a, you know, he was one of the, a pioneer talking about global warming ever since his days in, as a Harvard undergraduate. He, he didn't make much of the issue in the campaign. It is a crucial issue, uh, but it's a, an issue that dare not speak its name because of Michigan, because of manufacturing, because of industry, so that all the other you know, if you, you pointed out how you know, jobs are involved. Yes, but even to talk about the jobs, it raises people's anxiety. My God, am I going to lose my job in this massive energy transition? Jack, okay, I want to go back to where we started with that powerful Daisy ad from LBJ um, and the stakes of math, mass death from a nuclear bomb. I mean, what are the stakes? How do you see the stakes here? Well, uh, David Wallace Wells cites studies on the mass death. Humanity is already suffering from global warming. And he says, recent estimates were that warming has already killed more than 4 million people this century from malnutrition, floods, diarrhea, malaria, and heart disease. He quotes from one of these studies, vanishingly few of these deaths, however, have been recognized by victims' families or acknowledged by national governments as the consequence of climate change. It's an invisible killer that scientists can say it has produced these premature deaths, but no one seems to, re you don't recognize that your diarrhea, some poor person in a wretched state is, is caused by foul water. And the foul water is to do with the you know, overflow of sewers. And the overflow of sewers has to do with floods. And the floods are a consequence of monsoon-like rains brought on by uh, climate change. Uh, you know, according to one, this really frightening projection it, it, two degrees of warming, and by the way, we're, you know, that's, that seems likely now, two degrees of warming will produce 40 million additional deaths by the end of the century, including annually, from heat exposure alone, a half million Indians, 100,000 Americans, 400,000 Chinese. In short, the apocalyptic future in the Daisy Ad 
is in store for humanity and is in, it built into already the particulate matter, the carbon in the air. And unless we get it out, it will be not just a projection, but a reality. Okay, so that's what I want to hear from our Jackpot listeners about this week. Do you agree with Jack about the stakes of uh, Donald Trump's second term as it relates to the environment? Are we in for dire consequences if President Trump were to reverse course on the path we're on for a cleaner energy future to, to fight climate change? So go on the Vox Pop app, let us know your thoughts on that, and we'll, we'll talk about them next week. If you don't have it already on your phone, just search On Point Vox Pop in the App Store. That's the way you can add your voice in the highest quality to next week's conversation. So now let's get your thoughts on last week's episode where Jack talked about the example of Ronald Reagan in his 1982 phone call to the then Prime Minister of Israel, where Reagan threatened to cut off support for Israel over its shelling of Beirut. So we asked you, should Biden do the same thing with current Prime Minister Netanyahu over Rafa? Or would that have negative consequences possibly for the U.S. and Israel? I have been asking myself the past few weeks, what has President Biden done to leave himself stuck in this time warp about Israel? Okay, we'll hear if Jack thinks Joe Biden is stuck in a time warp and more of your takes on what President Biden should do about Israel when we come back from a quick break. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Jack, we are back. Last week, we asked what Jackpod listeners thought of your example of President Ronald Reagan's 1982 call to Israeli Prime Minister Benachem Begin and whether they think it's an example that President Joe Biden should follow now. So I have the pleasure of listening to all of the responses we get each week, and I feel like I'm really getting to know our very thoughtful and engaged jackpot community. So here's more from Susie Gordon in Redlands, California. You heard her before the break say that she thinks President Biden is stuck in a time warp when it comes to Israel. I wish someone would go to him and say, snap out of it. Snap out of it now, because if Ronald Reagan did this, you most certainly can do it and you should do it. As an American citizen, I am sick and tired of watching Benjamin Netanyahu thumb his nose at every American president, every president who supports him with everything he needs to stay in power, and especially now. That was Susie Gordon in Redlands, California. And here's Jim Sturzinski. He's in Corrales, New Mexico. 
There is only one person in the entire world who has the requisite enormous political capital with Israeli Jews to help them see through their trauma in order to grasp the equally deep trauma that they are inflicting on Palestinians. That person is Joe Biden. So Biden should call Netanyahu. But to give him a heads up that Biden is going to speak directly to the Israeli people, somewhat recalling what Netanyahu did to Barack Obama, to explain how Israel has lost the moral high ground and will lose even more if it does not immediately start treating the Palestinians as human beings. Jack, what do you think? Oh, Jim's point is so well taken. Um, You know, that's in effect uh, what happened when President Obama was in office and Prime Minister Netanyahu came over here and, and went behind the president's back and addressed Congress at the invitation of the Republican Speaker John Boehner. Uh, and that was an appeal to the American people beyond the president. And it was all about, you know, Netanyahu was against uh, the deal on uh, nuclear weapons that uh, the Obama administration was working out with um, with Iran. Uh, and sure, would uh, Biden has tremendous credibility now from what we read in Israel because of his extraordinary uh, mission there, quite uh, just days after the massacre where he... You know, I think it was one of the best moments of his presidency where he just showed such empathy and understanding for this, how this horrific act fits into Israeli and indeed Jewish history worldwide. There are billboards honoring him in Israel. And if he went behind the prime minister's back, what would happen? We don't know. It would, would it produce a new election? Would that election produce a, an Israeli prime minister any more amenable toward uh, Palestinian statehood, we just don't know. But it's a, it would be a dramatic move, that's for sure. As for uh, uh, Susie's point about the uh, Biden stuck in a time warp, this was the burden of some very important reporting in the Washington Post last fall that younger members of his administration, people who regard him very highly, felt that he was in a time warp, that the experience we cited last week of meeting Golda Meir just on the eve of the uh, uh, 1973 war, that that engraved itself uh, on the president's memory, and he hasn't been able to move away from this view of Israel as a beleaguered state threatened by other states to the more complicated and nuanced view today that Israel is a it is the biggest regional power. It is a, it is threatened offstage thus far and indirectly by Iran, but not by any of its immediate neighbors, if you leave out Hezbollah, which isn't yet a state. So uh, people, his, his aides were saying, you know, just what Susie says, break out of your time warp and recognize that this is Benjamin Netanyahu who does not want what you want, which is a a Palestinian state. And you mentioned, you know, we don't know what the consequences would be if Biden were to make a direct appeal to the Israeli people. But uh, we're going to move on to Terrell Benedetto in Palm Springs, California, because he says President Biden needs to do something else in addition to that. He says President Biden had a moral and political obligation to condition USAID to Israel from the beginning of its operation in Gaza, and that by not doing so, the United States will be less secure. 
We're just proving to the extremists of the planet that we are the terrorists that they accuse us of being. And now we've just created the next generation of young people with nothing left to live for but vengeance against us and Israel. And we're provoking Iran and risking the start of World War III. So it was Biden's obligation to cut off aid months ago. Now we have blood stain on our hands I don't think our country's soul can ever recover from. Okay, Jack, I don't know how old Terrell is, but many adults in their 30s and 40s now came of age 9-11, understanding the cost of what terrorists who hate America. What do you make of Terrell's suggestion and, and the choices that Biden's made about aid to Israel? Well, Terrell is echoing uh, something of what of the resonance, really, of what uh, Senator Bernie Sanders uh, was talking about in the clip that we quoted from last week. Senator Sanders has sort of brooded the idea of uh, changing the menu of uh, weapons supplied to Israel so that defensive weapons they could have, their anti-missile missiles and Iron Dome and so on, but uh, no more shells for tanks and howitzers, offensive weapons, that sort of thing. Whether that's feasible or not, I don't know. But on the larger question, the Terrell answers, I can't imagine an American president who would say after the massacres of October that uh, Israel does not have a right to defend itself. The, the greatest threat that the Jewish people have faced since 1945 is right there in those tunnels of, of Gaza, these, this death cult of, of Hamas. And any nation in the world would have the right to strike at them. The tragedy compounding daily is that these terrorists are in the midst of a civilian population to whose welfare they care not a whit and are happy to see them all die if it will somehow hurt Israel. So that's the tragedy of it. But I can't imagine any American president saying, no, don't go into Gaza. So most listeners who left us messages this week were pretty compelled by the example that you gave and think that Joe Biden should use that as an example to inform how he handles Israel now. But we did have a few listeners who said the opposite of Susie, like, okay, that was then, but this is now. Here's Jeff in Guilford, Connecticut. The fighters who were stuck in Beirut in 1982 are, it seems to me, a different kettle of fish entirely than the uh, Hamas fighters uh, that we're talking about evacuating. The events of October 7th are on a scale very different than anything that we've seen before. I am having trouble coming up with a country that would want to take these people. And that really is the question. Where would they go? Jack? Jeff raises a crucial but unanswerable question. Who would want them? The fighters of the PLO in 1982 uh, went to various places, Tunisia, I believe, Algeria. But uh, I, I, it would be hard to imagine where these people could go. I was floating there, the, the idea of the uh, Israeli historian Tom Segev, who was saying, put them on boats and let them go. He didn't itemize where they could go either. Uh, so uh, that, is a big, that is a big question. Well, Jack, that is it for this week. Thank you as always, and a special thanks for letting me join you this week. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. I'm Dori Scheimer. Megna will be back next week. Until then, this has been the Jackpot from On Point. Point.